0: Going with me in 1 Timothy chapter 4. 1 Timothy chapter 4. As you're turning there, let me encourage you to pray for our members that are scattered throughout the United States and especially the Southeast uh, during the summertime. We've got a large number of college students and uh, others that are serving in camps and mission opportunities. You'll want to pray for them. We've sent a small team of 25 to Indiantown, Florida. And isn't it good to say that a team of 25 around here on a mission trip is a small team? That's great. We took 110 last summer, but they're going and they are assisting in Vacation Bible School. uh, And as they seek to reach out to Indiantown, Florida, I hope our Guatemalan friends in Indiantown may be able to join us one day here in Athens to help us with some of our mission opportunities. And if that occurs, then what has happened is that those who were at first receivers will become senders. And that's my whole—that's where my heart is. I want us to do missions that results in missions, and that's the wonderful thing about being part of a church like Beach Haven. Uh, God has blessed us with the human resources and otherwise to do things like this. Please pray then for uh, for them, and then also please um, remember uh, Ashley Malden. The shower that we had for her today is going to have to be canceled. Uh, she has just been put in the hospital for observation. Uh, the baby's just a few weeks from the due date, and as a precaution, they felt that that was necessary. Now, if you've got gifts for it, just bring them by the church office or you can bring them by my house. But uh, well, I don't know, baby stuff just really wouldn't fit us, but anyway, the best thing to do is to bring it by the uh, office, and uh, they would greatly appreciate that. First Timothy chapter four, beginning in verse number 11, down to chapter five verse two, talks about or assumes a multi-generational congregation. And that is the church with uh, infants and children, preschoolers, young adults, middle and senior adults. And that's the assumption of the scripture. And I like being part of a multi uh, generational congregation uh, like Beach Haven. And we communicate that uh, anytime we uh, ask um, uh, and, and invite people, and especially when we show up at a ministry uh, conference that. Um, uh, discusses that. We tell especially college students on the campus that at Beach Haven, when asked to describe who we are, um, we uh, tell them that we've got uh, senior adults and we've got babies and we've got everyone in between. And that's the kind of congregation that we have. Now, you may be surprised that someone would notice that some churches are multi generational. You, you may be asking, well, is there any other kind? Yes, indeed there is. Uh, there are churches that are being planted on college campuses, reach uh, specifically to reach college students. Uh, there are some that are being planted in senior adult retirement communities. Uh, I guess in a niche situation, that's okay. But the New Testament does not imagine a single-generation congregation. There's so much that needs to happen in ministry that is assumed in the New Testament, especially the pastoral epistles. Uh, this text in Titus 2, that you need a multi-generational congregation to do what the New Testament says. And that's what we've got here. And I like being part of Beechhaven. For that reason, there are several reasons. One, with the multi generational congregation, we have generations of stories of victory. I mean, we've had some in their young years that have just had victory over their guilt and sin because they've come to Christ as Savior. And then we've got some in their retired years who've had victory in their own lives over all sorts and all manner of heartache and sorrow, the difficulties that they've experienced. Uh, They met God in every one of them and they've come through. So we've got many generations of stories of victory. Then we are an anchor in the community and have been. In fact, uh, on this side of the business community, we were the first thing out here. When Beach Haven was planted in 1959, we were in the woods and this was a forest and there was nothing else out here but a few establishments along the Atlanta Highway and the highway in front of us was just a two-lane thing. Uh, so we, we were about the first thing out here, and we are an anchor in the community, and that's really encouraging. People look to us uh, to serve in that way. I'm not trying to brag. I'm just really grateful that that's the case. We also have a location that is very strategic, a, a building in a very strategic location. There really is not a better location in the entire Northeast Georgia region if you want to reach the Athens region. We are in the middle of everything and that, that's a great encouragement. Uh, another item, uh, we have, we, we've got stable finances. God has blessed us remarkably uh, with, with that, and uh, one day we'll give you some more and more good news. I will tell you, our stewardship committee looks at our balance sheet sometimes and tries to wonder, how can we spend this? We're, we, they're looking for opportunities to spend, and we thank God for what you've done. Uh, we have a history also worth saving. From our mission action to our mission giving, our own fellowship and our love for one another, there's an awful lot of our history that is worth saving. Now, we don't worship it, but we should save it. And then we have senior adults, babies, and everyone in between. And that is a neat gift in a congregation. And you know, you really need both. Our young people keep us from going too slow and freezing. Our senior adults keep us from going too fast and frying. So we don't freeze and we don't fry. And that helps us. And, and we've got to have the kind of congregation where we appreciate those kinds of uh, influences. Uh, Vance Havner said that every congregation needs that. He says, youth has the fire and the aged have the light and both are necessary in a great work of God. The, the problem, however, is that in our day, because our nation is so defined by division, unlike when I was younger, even unlike just a few years ago, Because the nation is defined by division, oftentimes that division appears in congregations. There there are some multi-generational congregations that battle over worship style. Now, we don't do that here, and that's not welcomed here, but there are some that do, and that may surprise you. There are some that battle over leadership. There's some that battle over ministry and financial priorities. We, we don't do that here. We're not going to. But the truth is, is that sometimes there can be some difficulty in a multi-generational congregation when that happens. And Paul assumes that here in the text. Ken Burns, in his uh, a recent series of uh, films that he did, uh, a series that he did, said that the nation's motto, reminded viewers that the nation's motto is, E Pluribus Unum, out of many, one. He said, in our nation today, we have too much, too much pluribus and not enough unum. And that's true. We've got too many that are plural, individual, focused on their own selfish ideas and doing so selfishly, and not enough desire to unify. And Paul overcomes this in this text in 1 Timothy chapter 4, beginning in verse number 11. Look at what he says there. Referring to verses 1 through 10, which I'll address in just a moment. These things command and teach. Let no one despise your youth, but be an example to believers in word, in conduct, in love, in spirit, in faith, in purity. Till I come, give attention to reading, to exhortation, to doctrine. Do not neglect the gift that is in you, which was given to you by prophecy with the laying on of the hands of the eldership. Meditate on these things. Give yourself entirely to them that your progress may be evident to all. Take heed to yourself and to the doctrine. Continue in them, for in doing this you will save both yourself and those who hear. Do not rebuke an older man, but exhort him as a father, younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters with all purity. And that's always an appropriate caution. So here the Apostle Paul teaches us how it is we can enjoy a multi-generational congregation. And I want to point to you what he says about doing that very thing. One, enjoy an untainted example. Now, in chapter 4, verse 11, Paul tells the young Timothy, who's probably 30 to 35 years old, that in his multi-generational congregation, he's going to have to take what Paul has said in verses 1 through 10, and he's going to have to be authoritative and commanding in preaching and teaching that word. Now, you can understand by taking such authority and having a commanding word in the pulpit by a young man like that, how that could be resented by some. But then he says in verse number 12, here's your solution. So so you've got to be commanding in preaching the word of God. The pastor is not a mild-mannered man preaching mild-mannered messages to a mild-mannered congregation urging others to be more mild-mannered. That is not his objective. He is to do what the biblical text says and preach the Word of God and let the consequences be what God determines they'll be. To repeat from last week, consequences are none of your business. Consequences are none of my business. We have one business, and that is to trust and obey God and leave the consequences with Him. And that's what he's talking about in verses 1 through 10. He goes into the doctrine of demons. I mean, he gets really specific about some of the error in his day, some of the error which perpetuates to this day and is the official doctrine of some denominations. And then he says, in light of that error, I want you to be immersed in the ministry of the Word of God. And then verse 11, command and teach these things. The pastor has got to, on occasion, when appropriate, go negative. So let me just say, no, we're not going to the zoo to hire orangutans to serve the Lord's Supper. Not going to do it. No, we're not going to do interpretive dance on the platform with someone in a tutu with a hula hoop. It's happened. No, I'm not going to demand all the men wear ties and suits. No, no, we're not going to be a King James Version only church. No, we're not going to do that. We're not going to tell people that in order to dress appropriately in church on Sunday, you've got to wear your best. No, no one does it. No one does it. We're not doing that. Uh, in fact, I'll tell you, I'd really like to wear my best on Sunday morning. You know what my best is? I've got an expensive pair of cowboy boots, jeans, a shirt, and a belt buckle that's the most loud and obnoxious thing you've ever seen in your life. That is my best. fact, we may just do that next Sunday. But no, we're not going to do that. We're not going to start elevating unbiblical standards and the word and the opinion of men and women to the standard of the word of God. No, there's got to be some courage from leadership in these things. And so that's what he's saying in verse 11. And he says the way that you can make this palatable and make it easier to embrace is verse number 12. Look there with me. Let no one despise your youth but be an example and be an example in these areas. Folks, listen to me. Everyone appreciates a good example. Every generation appreciates a good example. Uh, there's no one in the world complaining about a good example. And, and this is what Paul is saying here. In order to have the kind of congregation that fellowships with one another in a multi-generational way, you need not only the ministry of the Word, but you've got to have a good example. It it inspires confidence in every generation. When when young people set a good example, the older generation appreciates it. When the older generation sets a good example, the younger generation may not always be aware of it. They should be, but they'll appreciate it when they learn of it. So he says in verse 12, let no one despise your youth, but be an example to believers in all of these multiplied areas in every area where you can conceivably be a good example be a good example and, and, and so the qualities here are internal uh, or, or excuse me outward co- uh, qualities in word and in conduct and then there's some that are internal love in spirit in faith and in purity everyone appreciates a good example and that can happen across generations you know something um, A couple of years ago, when A.B. Sawyer departed our staff and went to uh, South Alabama, went back home to serve at First Baptist Church there, uh, he was well-loved. And A.B. spent most of his ministry with senior adults and doing pastoral care. And didn't you love him? Oh, I did. I've never known anybody quite like A.B. Sawyer. But do you know that his last day here, so much of it was spent not only with senior adults, most of that day was spent with children. His last official, <laughs> you're going to love this, his last official act as a minister of uh, missions and pastoral care was a game of Simon Says with the Iwana kids on Sunday night. <laughs> That's the last thing he did. And I mean, kids broke loose. There were tears of joy and tears of sorrow that he was departing because he not only served and ministered senior adults, he did so with children and were tight with them. Ladies and gentlemen, listen to me. Senior adults, Don't ever, ever, ever go another day without being tight or at least initiating relationships that are tight with kids. Give yourself to them and back and forth. What a wonderful thing. Enjoy an untainted example. But there's a second thing. Enjoy an unconceited submission. Now, that's implied in verse 13. Look what he says here. Timothy, until I come, give attention to reading, to exhortation, and a doctrine now what paul is implying here is is that until i come you need to be focused on reading the scripture in public exhorting and strengthening people with it and to the doctrines of the faith now when paul arrived paul would step into timothy timothy's place and replace him so what he's telling timothy is you do not have any inherent authority all of your authority is derived All of your authority is subordinate to the authority of the Word of God. And that is the kind of posture that builds a multi-generational congregation. There are always folks in churches who are pretty immature but don't know it yet. And they're always trying to impose views and opinions and um, notions that they prefer themselves and communicate them with such energy and intensity it's as if they come from god himself and nothing could be further from the truth on some of these things and so paul says make the word of god your standard don't be conceited as if you have some authority instead submit to the word of god that is the standard not novelty not creativity not originality, which tends to be something that younger generations end up uh, preferring and, and trending towards. Those things can be helpful in their place, but our authority is not creativity. Our authority is not novelty. Our authority is not originality. That's Hadda used to say, when I started in ministry, um, I determined I was going to be original or nothing, and I soon discovered I was both. May I say to you, it is not the job of any minister or any Bible teacher, or any person in the church at all to invent messages. We are not the origin and the source of it. I just want to tell you, I appreciate so much the encouragement you give about the messages I preach, but I have to tell you, it's hard to do a bad book report on a good book. And I'm using someone else's notes. I mean, they're on my own sermons. But this is God's Word. It is there. And I remember the day when I was just an 18-year-old kid as a summer missionary in Cave City, Kentucky. I was sitting at Yogi Bear's Jellystone Resort. We used to do all kinds of missions back then. And I was sitting in that trailer. I had the responsibility for teaching every Sunday morning. Uh, at the um, uh, preaching every Sunday morning a worship service and every Sunday night a youth Bible study at a, at a local church and I opened up the Word of God and sitting there God Himself taught me how to preach the biblical text. I mean the divisions of the message and the point of it just surfaced from the text, and I was not th- I was nothing but eighteen years old. Uh, you know I I didn't know whether the fellow in John three was Nicodemus or Nicodemus I I, I didn't know how to pronounce that. We do not have to be cute, original, creative. All those those things can have a place. We are to be faithful to the biblical text here. The Scripture ends up settling all of the issues is what the biblical text does. There is no other authority besides the Word of God. and That's why it's so desperately and terribly important that this coming fall, In August, we commit ourselves to discipleship training on Sunday nights and Wednesday nights. Everyone should be part of that unless providentially hindered. And then we need to start new Sunday school classes. We need to take sermon notes and review them. And then we need family devotions. And then, starting tomorrow, if you will take a worship guide, a bulletin from here at Beach Haven, and go to the LifeWay store on the Coney Connector, if you'll take this, they will give you a free Bible to give to someone else. And we're actually the first group in the area to participate in this. And so please take a uh, worship guide and uh, get that to them and get that Bible to someone else because God's Word is the authority. So we're to enjoy an unconceited submission. But there's a third thing. Enjoy an unrestricted service. One of the greatest blessings I've ever experienced as a pastor was a 94-year-old woman who was still teaching Sunday school in my second pastorate in North Carolina. And I remember every month we would meet as Sunday school workers on a Sunday night and she had a really illustrious history of outreach and Bible teaching. She and her little class of women over 70, about five or six of them, would make 70 contacts a week, many of them evangelistic. And they got around the community constantly and often, and she still was driving at age 94. And I'll never forget, we're in the Sunday School Workers' Meeting, and she looks at me and she says, Pastor, I think God has given me another vision for ministry. Now, quiet in the back of my mind, I thought, well, we better hurry because you don't have much time. But (laughs) when she said that, I believed her because 14 years earlier when she was 80, she went to the preschool and children's divisions in our Sunday school ministry and found the rooms were empty. She was horrified. And so she started knocking on every door in the community, gathering children on Sundays and Wednesday nights bringing them to church. Next business meeting, she railroaded the church to buy a bus and van. And by the time I got there, we had the largest uh, children and student ministry in the area because an 80-year-old woman poured herself out in prayer and labor to do so. And and by the way, the church was very amenable to buying the church van because, you know, once you start packing, you know, about 25 middle school kids in your car, it's probably not a good, that can't be legal. And so um, that's what she was doing. I'll never forget, that was the heart she had. She did not have restrictions on her service. I don't know why it is, but there are some people who think, I have served my years and I'm done. It's time for someone else to take it. Now, I understand uh, the the need not to become overextended, and I sympathize with that. Uh, You you don't need to be doing something uh, every Sunday morning and every Sunday night and every Wednesday night in leadership beyond the ministerial staff and, and some exceptional lay people. I understand that. But the truth is, is that there never comes a day when able-bodied people can retire from service to Jesus Christ. And you know something? Our whole preschool ministry is built on that supposition. You ought to see. It's a remarkable thing. And so we're to enjoy an unrestricted service. Now, look what he said in verse 14. He said, do not neglect the gift that is in you. Now, the way this is worded in the Greek text is, stop neglecting the gift that is in you start using it is the meaning and the point is what he's saying here so we're to use our gifts talents and abilities until our final day Uh, so every able-bodied individual that is not providentially hindered is to find some place to serve jesus christ and to magnify him and can i ask you this make your preschool and children's ministries your first consideration when thinking about serving and um, uh, giving yourself to ministry and service. Now, a couple of weeks ago in Vacation Bible School, we had one of our deacons, after a 50-year absence, take up that call. And I want to show you a picture of what Bob Moeller was doing during Vacation Bible School. He He did our Bible time with our groups. And I forget exactly what age group this is, but all week long he got on the floor with these kids and taught them God's Word. Now, he began... More than 50 years ago, when he was about 19 years old, as the principal of a vacation Bible school. I think the material and everything was handed to him the week before, and he took it and ran with it, and after 50 years' absence, has come in. Now, that's not all. Bob got really enthusiastic about some of our hand motions as well, and I want you to see this. (laughs) <laughs> this is someone without restrictions on his service and his beautiful wife judy is uh, very similar for years she has done our kindergarten to first grade children's choir doing something no restrictions on service listen we've got to have the attitude of servitude we tell god god there are no limits to what i'll do for you god there there are no prerequisites. None whatsoever. I'll do whatever you want me to do. I won't negotiate. I won't bargain. I am here to serve. I belong to you. No restrictions whatsoever. Well, there's a fourth thing, and that is enjoy an unoffending graciousness. Enjoy an unoffending graciousness. Now, I was taught to do this when I was younger, and I've had to grow in it like anyone else, but I have Really, a double mind about tattoos. I do. I am very accepting on one hand of those with them. But number two, I'm not getting any. That's my double mind. Let me tell you why. My father had about a dozen tattoos when I was coming up. My favorite one was one on his shoulder of a longhorn steer. Actually, that was down on his leg. And he used to keep them covered up in formal situations, but uh, he had about a dozen And he got those, I think, all in about 10 minutes in 1959. He was in the Navy over in the Philippines one day and acquired a bunch of them. So I've always been accepting and encouraging. I don't encourage people to get them, but I've always been accepting of those who've had them. I've never had a problem with it. But the second part of my mind comes from my father as well. If I had gotten one, he would have killed me. (laughs) And so, I'm very accepting of those with them, but I'm not getting one. And I told my children, you come home with a tattoo before you're 18, you're going to the dermatologist, and it is getting scrubbed without any kind of anesthesia. Don't do it. So that's my attitude about tattoos. I'm I'm double-minded on that. Uh, Well, you know, I I think, frankly, as far as we're concerned, that's the best posture to take when it comes to folks, and that came as a result of multi-generational interaction with my father. Well, Paul has some of this in mind in chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. And he assumes something here. He assumes verses 1 and 2 are necessary. Apparently, there are circumstances in the congregation that make verses 1 and 2 profoundly necessary. Now look there. Do not rebuke an older man. Don't get stern and ugly and forceful and intense when an older man needs correction. Don't be combative with him. Don't be ugly in that way. Do not rebuke an older man. Now, sometimes older men need some correction. Sometimes they do. I've had to do that at times. And thank God for this this counsel here in verse 1. So you do not rebuke him. You don't get ugly with him. You don't don't become intense. You don't uh, be forceful. But exhort him as a father. In other words, what you do when you're younger and an older man needs correction, you try to strengthen him and direct him. And I've had some really wonderful, insightful experiences as a young pastor with older men helping them with uh, strengthening them and redirecting them on some of their thoughts and some of their behavior. And I found them marvelously cooperative. And that's one reason I have such a high opinion of older adults. So, do not rebuke an older man, but exhort him as a father. Well, sometimes older men need some redirection, so you exhort them as a father. Then younger men exhort them as brothers. So sometimes younger men need some redirection. Sometimes younger men need some counsel. And you do that as brothers. And then older women, you address them as mothers. So how would you go about addressing your own mom? Well, when an older woman needs some redirection, You do it as a mother. Then, younger women as sisters. Now, let me say to you, this all assumes in this text that you know what it means to appeal to a father, mother, younger man, and sister. Paul is assuming an ideal approach to family here. Paul is assuming that when we have to give others redirection, that we have had a model in our own family where it was Christ-like and done well. Folks, the problem with some people and how they talk to older or younger people or people their own age is that they are doing it the way their family did it. Are, are you hearing me? Sometimes that's the very problem. And in their families, they had knockdown down drag or they, they, they had that or, or they, they pretended like the problem didn't exist or they manipulate. And so what we've had in relationships outside the family are relationships that reflect the family. I just have to tell you, the division and the chaos in America today is no surprise to me. And I know it's not a surprise to many of you. You know why? Because of the condition of marriages and family. Listen, if things aren't right at home, they're not going to be right anywhere else, especially the political world. And the license that people take with other people's reputation and the ugly things people say about each other. My goodness. Let me ask you to consider this and think about this. Unless there is some kind of dramatic change, that comes about in you, you will, without thinking about it, reproduce your parents' marriage and your family style in your own marriage and in your own family and in your own relationships. Now, for a lot of you, that's great. That's exactly what you want. For some of you, that's a sorrowful thing. I understand. For most of us, it's mixed, mostly on the good side. That's good. But unless there is some kind of dramatic change that comes upon you, some kind of outside intervention, some kind of disappointment, maybe maybe a kind word, what you have seen in your parents and in your family, you will try to reproduce. And and that's what Paul is assuming here. He's assuming that Timothy had a solid family life where his parents modeled a good marriage. And so he can say without much elaboration, well, go ahead and do it the way you would have done your father and your mother. And Paul knew Timothy's family. He was there in Acts chapter 16 and mentions them in the first chapter of 2 Timothy. See, and, and the third chapter of 2 Timothy. So he knew the family and he said, Timothy, hey, what I saw you do with your father and mother, do with older men and older women and brothers and and young men and young women in your church. And, And so we need to enjoy this unoffending grace. Now, look what he says in verse 16. Take heed to yourself and to your doctrine. Continue in them, for in doing this, you will save with your reputation both yourself and those who hear you from being despised in verse 12. The word saved is not always used for spiritual salvation like the word can is not always used for ability. I can, can, a can of peaches. That's three different ways of using the same word. The same is true here with the word saved. You won't be despised if you will take heed to yourself and to your doctrine. Now, here's what Paul is saying. Before you ever get to the point where you start correcting others, start correcting yourself. That's where you start. And, and you examine yourself. You do all that you can to make the changes necessary. You've got humility. I know you don't have perfection, but you've got humility. You've taken heed to yourself. So whenever it comes time to give an older generation or a younger generation redirection, we first concern ourselves with what we are. Am I where I need to be? And then we move on to who they are. If they're older... Then we correct them as mothers and fathers. If they are younger, we do so as brothers and sisters. And that all assumes we know how to do that in the context of family. Would you please listen to me? Oh, please listen to me, sweet people. After your walk with Jesus Christ, the most important thing you will ever do, the most important thing you will ever do is get your heart and mind reconciled with your parents and your family from the past. And if you do then you've got a bright future with your own. And that's the most important thing you'll do outside your walk with Jesus Christ. Now, Paul has elevated the standard rather high here. He's talked about an example. The truth is, some of us have failed in our example. And there are some that may look down on us, and frankly, we may deserve it because we've not set a good example. He's talked about also being unconceited and submissive to the Word. Some of us don't even know the word well enough to be submissive to it. And some who do have not. They've got this rebellious spirit and they won't listen to God. They're always explaining away why they don't obey. And then we're to enjoy service and abandon ourselves and too many of us are focused on ourselves. And and then we are to have an undefending graciousness and frankly we can count on ourselves about every week to offend somebody. May I say to you, The reason we have the kind of ministry of the word that we have is simply because for every one of these sins, there is enough grace in God to cleanse them all. Every one of them. There is no one here today guilty before God that has to stay that way. No one has to stay that way. No one has to remain guilty before God. Immediately, instantaneously and eternally, things can be different for you before God. Because the blood has been shed, the preparations have been made, grace is available, the power of God and the arm of God is strong enough to reach down right where you sit and radically change your status before God and your life forever. No one who is guilty has got to stay that way. Your your righteousness may be as dead as dead can be, but God specializes in raising people from the dead. He can do it. And if you'll simply trust Christ in this cross, what Jesus did there for you, abandon yourself and entrust yourself to the Lord, this can be a new day for you. And we want to invite you to do that today. In just a moment, we'll sing a song and our staff will be here. And we're going to invite you to give your heart and life to Christ and say yes to Him. And if you'll do so, God will make a difference in you. God's moving on some of you to join Beach Haven, to become part of this. And I want to tell you, the message I preach today is pretty typical of our pulpit ministry and our Sunday school ministries. Our worship today is pretty typical of that, I promise. But whether it is or not, you do God's will. God may be calling some of you to ministry or missions or to some kind of full-time vocational service, and you want the church to pray for you. You come as well and let us know. I want to pray with you, and after we pray, we're going to invite you to come and let you do serious business with God.